<laughs> I love the sound of the kids' voices in church. It just makes me so happy. Um, good morning, everyone. Those of you that are here, uh, those of you that are online, nice to see you. Um, communion, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but before um, I forget, I want everyone to know that everyone is welcome at the communion table here at Liminal. Hey, you did something cool with the lights. I, I can see. So we are at the end of the Trinity series, and next week we're going to have a wrap-up, which means that the teachers will be sitting up here. And we invite you to come with your comments, maybe the insight that maybe touched you. Come with your questions. We will try to answer them. And feel free to give us advice, too. I mean, we learned a lot from you guys the last time we had a wrap-up on the Mark series. So we really appreciated the fact that uh, well, what you bring to the teaching team is incredibly helpful. So those of you that know me know, I hope, will be pleased to hear that today I will not be giving you a church history lesson. And thank you for bearing with me the last, uh, the, the two Sundays that I was up here when I really leaned into uh, church history and theology and probably kept you a little bit longer in your seats than you wanted to and also refrained from giving you a test after the message. I'm going to just take a little tiny rabbit trail right now to talk about pronouns because we've been talking about the Trinity a lot. And um, traditionally, we use the terms Father, Son, and Spirit to describe the three persons of the Trinity. And many of us, including me, were raised uh, to use exclusively masculine language for God. And if you're around my age, that is your default mode, and it is certainly my default mode. But this is just a reminder to us all, or maybe a new thought for us all, that in Scripture, feminine language does occur about God. Hebrew nouns are either masculine or feminine, and they take an, either a masculine or feminine verb form. And... Uh, the Hebrew scriptures, there are feminine images and names and uh, metaphors for God, not as much as masculine names and titles and images, but they are there. God is spoken of as male and female, and when he created humans, he created them male and female in order to reflect his divine image. In Deuteronomy, God is uh, shown as or described as giving birth tells about the labor that God goes into, or gives us an image of the labor that God goes into in order to birth Israel. In Isaiah, can I touch this? Is there a light here? It doesn't, if it doesn't work, it's okay. I can still see. Okay. In, um, hold on. I'm not sure if it's plugged in. It's okay. He won't give up till he fixes something. <laughs> this, is, this is my husband. Go sit down. <laughs> oh, look at it. He feels like a failure because he couldn't make the lights go. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, in Isaiah, oh sorry, now I bumped my mic. Uh, God is described as a nursing mother. And these are only of the few of the feminine images of God. Ruach, the Hebrew word for breath, as well as wind, and the word that's used for spirit, is a feminine noun that takes a feminine verb form. And you may have also heard of the Hebrew word Shekinah. Like the word Trinity, Shekinah is not found in the Bible, but it is a word that means the abiding presence of God. And it's to describe how God dwells among us. Of Judaism, a Shekinah is used as the feminine personification. So today, as I talk about the three persons of the Trinity, and by habit, we'll be using masculine language, I would like to suggest or to offer the idea that to use exclusively masculine language about God is not mandated by Scripture. Exclusively feminine language about God is not mandated. And I will say that when people use inclusive or feminine language where the text calls for it, they are not changing the text, and they are not changing the meaning of the text. We could say that they are the actual biblical literalists who are restoring the text. So I hope uh, we can agree that all language describing God is often, often metaphorical, We are limited by language, and we are limited by our finite understanding. And that's why we cannot conclude from uh, masculine pronouns or feminine images that God is either male or female. God is neither, and yet both, and yet far beyond our ideas of gender. In church tradition and history, oops, I used that word, sorry, (laughs) understanding the Trinitarian God, the three persons of the Trinity as male became the pattern. It's the pattern that we uh, adopted. But it wasn't always the pattern everywhere. Among the early Latin-speaking church fathers in the first 200 years after Christ was born, Several argued for a translation of the Hebrew word for spirit that retained the feminine image. Lately, I've been trying to use uh, genderless words about God, such as Holy One, the God who is love. I've learned to use the phrases the divine and Ruach from my brother Wayne. All this to say, use the pronouns that you are comfortable with. But please recognize that using masculine or feminine language exclusively might limit your view of God. And please be open to how and why others use different pronouns. So that was my rabbit trail. Now I'm actually going to start the message. I made the mistake a couple weeks ago of um, watching myself on video give the message. And I realized I'm touching my face all the time and my hair, and I, it looks really weird. So if I start doing that, and if any of you just kind of raise your hand in the back and go. <laughs> okay, I'm going to cover some of the same ground that the other teachers have covered in this series. And mostly because you can't, I'm learning, you can't 
talk about the Trinity enough. And maybe my way of talking about it today will be just a slightly different perspective. Now, for me, as I've stated many times, it's way more comfortable to stay in the mind, headspace, to understand things from the headspace. And for a very long time, up until this, this series, I have felt that if you know that there's a doctrine of the Trinity, as expressed in the Nicene if you know that is the essential doctrine of Christianity, and if you know what it says, then you've gotten the importance of the Trinity. Basically, you know what you need to know. But as I was preparing for this series and researching and reading, I kept coming across uh, words and phrases from brilliant authors and theologians that just did not make any sense to me. Phrases such as, yeah, delighting in the Trinity. The triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. The Trinity demonstrates the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. The Trinity is our maker and protector, our dear friend forever, filling my heart with the greatest joy. This language, when talking about the Trinity, was pretty much incomprehensible to me. It did not make sense. And then the, crick, the kicker from Richard Rohr in The Divine Dance. Richard Rohr says, and uh, I'm, not, I'm sort of summarizing. If, you, if you've ever read Richard Rohr, he is not a linear writer. And he drives me nuts. So what I've done is taken what he said throughout his book and put it in a paragraph. <laughs> Richard Rohr says, because we are disconnected from understanding the nature of the triune God, it leads to a sense of disconnection from God and creates actual disconnection from each other and from the world. This disconnection manifests itself in the evils or monumental problems we see in the world around us, racism, ecological devastation, gender discrimination, classism, greed, hoarding of resources, corruption, and on and on and on. He says, this disconnection from understanding the nature of the Trinity leads to those very monumental problems we see in the world around us today. And then he goes on to strongly imply that regrounding our faith in the Trinity regrounding ourselves in the triune God will reconnect us from all the separations, all the disconnections, all the polar opposites we sense and experience in life and in this world. Therefore, ending or diminishing the evils we see in the world around us. And in my mind, I'm like, no way, Roar. That is a heck of a leap in logic. Because I, and maybe you if you're a head person, or if, like me, you were formed in American Protestantism, or if you've deconstructed and God or its believers, the Christians, or if you are someone who has been deeply hurt, shamed, or othered by the church or its people, 
by the theology and actions of people who claim to love the doctrine of the Trinity? What Richard Rohr says is incomprehensible. Understanding the nature of the Trinity can help heal a world full of problems. But are Rohr and the other authors that I read talking about knowledge of the Trinity? Or are they talking about something else? After all, I have knowledge of the Trinity. I've droned on for two and now practically three Sundays on what I know about the Trinity. But Rohr and others say that having a verbal, even a well-articulated approach to the Trinity is not sufficient. It's only as strong as our ability to put it into words. They might have a point because has the Nicene Creed brought any of us any closer to a sure hope that the world could be better because we have that knowledge about the creed and what it says? I don't know. Let's look back at those quotes. They are not about knowledge of God. They are from people who have experienced the triune God. Those are experiential, relational words and phrases. Which leads me to this. Knowledge about God takes us partway. Experience of God takes us further. Or our understanding of the Trinity should be based in our experience reality of the Trinity. And that's why I created that as the message of the, this sermon. Paul tries to capture this. And you know Paul, he's not going to use just a slogan. Paul tries to capture this in the first chapter of Ephesians. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of, being, of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, 
once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This down payment from God is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll receive everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. Paul is saying, we were loved into being by the triune God. See Baxter Kruger in the same book, in the Divine Dance, has a, I've got a quote up here that kind of elaborates what, on what Paul said. The stunning truth is that this triune God, in amazing and lavish love, determined to open the circle and share the Trinitarian life with others. This is the one eternal and abiding reason for the creation of the world. There is no other God, no other will of God, no second plan, no hidden agenda for human beings. Before the creation of the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit set their love upon us and planned to bring us to share and know and experience the, tr the Trinitarian life itself. And then another quote from the same book. Because the Christian God is a communion of three persons, Faith leads us into the divine communion. Communion with this God is at, also at once communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship, both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. You can see that there are theologians and writers who are taking this understanding of the Trinity beyond what my um, conventional Presbyterian upbringing has ever stretched to. Now, I'm not throwing the Presbyterians under the bus because maybe, maybe they were saying this, but because I'm a person who lives up here, I didn't hear what they were saying. But this idea that loved, loved into being, that we were created to be in, in this Trinitarian relationship, in the dance, the movement, the perichoresis, as Wayne explained to us, of the Trinity. And all the churchy things we do, creeds, communion, confession of faith, prayer, good works, none of these make us more acceptable to God. None of these make us more beloved by God. They're good, though. They remind us and even help us return to our original identity as freely, generously loved by the triune God, graced by the triune God. Paul is telling us in Ephesians that the foundation of the world is relational. And we, created in the image of the relational God, are fundamentally relational. We are meant to be in communion with God, connected with God, with others, and with God's creation. To love God, to love people, to love the And this is what Jesus showed us and demonstrated over and over and over again in the Gospels. He was always reaching out to others, to the ones who had been othered or excluded status, gender, health, ethnicity, 
Syrophoenicians, Samaritans, lepers, Roman centurions, Jewish collaborators. He made a point of seeking out, of reconnecting the overlooked, those reduced to a label or a condition, those who had been ostracized. He made a point of seeking out or reconnecting those who had hurt people or who had held positions of power over people. Jesus was always reconnecting us, breaking down walls and crossing borders, geographical, social, economic, political, and religious. And maybe, just maybe, if we were immersed in the overflowing love of the triune God as Jesus was, we could do the same. I love theology. We need theologians. But we also need artists and poets and songwriters who can widen our perspective, touch our emotions, ignite our imaginations to help us experience or relate to the Trinity in a new way. I've never read the book, The Shack, until a couple of months ago. Uh, Feels like in, was it the 80s? It was like mandated church reading. And I'm one of the kind of person, if you tell me that I'm supposed to read something because everybody else is reading it, I'm not going to read it. But I... uh, did read it for this series because some people think that the story holds a helpful way to think about the Trinity. And as I was reading uh, the book, one line from the book stood out. I mean, grabbed me, resonated with me. And this is it. I suppose that since most of our hurts come through relationships, so will our healing. You don't have to have lived on this earth for very long to learn that we human beings have a tremendous capacity to hurt each other. The damage we do often seems irreparable. So this line, I suppose that since most of our hurts come through relationships, so will our healing, gave me pause, but it also gave me hope. Because what we are learning in this series is that the wonderful, dynamic relationship of the three-in-one God, the always-giving, always-receiving flow of infinite love within the Trinity flows to us, carries us, heals us, reconciles us. We were created to partake of, to participate in the inner richness of the Trinity, And as we begin to experience this overflowing love, we are transformed into people who generously give and receive love, who see the image of God in others, who attend the hurts of others, healing the wounds of this world, discovering that in the process, that all the love we have received and all the love we have ever given away is still present with us, has in fact become us because we have been transformed by the loving nature of the Trinity. That's my message for today. 
that we would aspire to be transformed by the Trinity and our hearts filled with the greatest joy. I'd like to invite the band up. James will be proud of me. I remembered to do this. (laughs) And as they come up, I'm going to close with a mashup of quotes. And one is from James Finley. The other is from Wendell Berry. I like it because it's a theologian and a poet. And these words are just, excuse me, a way for you to think about what it might look and feel like to step into the overflowing love of the three-in-one God. And if you don't mind, I would like you to close your eyes and just listen. Without warning, we find ourselves falling into the abyss of a star-strewn sky or find our heart impaled by a child's laughter or the unexpected appearance of the beloved's face. Without warning, we lose our footing in the silence broken and in the breaking, deepened by the splash of a frog we did not know was there. What is so extraordinary about such moments is that nothing beyond the ordinary is present. It's just a starlit sky, a child at play. It's just the primal stuff of life that has unexpectedly broken through the the mesh of opinions and concerns that all too often hold us in their spell. It is just the immediacy of life in the present moment before thought begins. Here in this unforeseen defenselessness is granted the contemplative experience. However obscure it might be, that we are the cosmic dance of God, that the present moment, just the way it is, is already in its deepest actuality, the fullness of union with God. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love, and that it can be redeemed only by love. I believe that divine love incarnate and indwelling in the world summons the world always toward wholeness which ultimately is reconciliation and atonement with God Amen We're going to take communion now and the way it works here is you'll just the band will play music, a song Uh, when you're ready walk up the center aisle take a wafer gluten-free, take the cup, it'll be, it's non-alcoholic grape juice, and then if you can walk down the center aisles, there's a little bit of a prop over here, so if this is clumsy, I mean, I said walk down the side aisles, if this is clumsy, it's okay, we can pass each other in the center aisles. When you sit back down with your bread and your juice, uh, take your time, but take communion when you're ready, and then, um, that's it. Let me uh, say a prayer. Jesus, we open our hands to receive you. You've put your very life into our hands in this juice and bread, and now we put our lives into yours. Take us, renew us, remake us. Give us eyes to see the miracles that happen every day 
ears to hear your voice always, hearts to express your infinite love. Amen. Thank you.